0: Welcome into another episode of Behind the Catch Fence. I'm your host, David Hoffman. It's officially episode 17. And before I begin, I'd like to give a quick shout out to No Copyright Music on YouTube. They're the ones creating the music that I'm playing. It's obviously no copyright music, so it's free. I'd like to thank you guys for that. With me being a broke college student, I'm grateful for you guys. Go subscribe to them. No Copyright Music. The last two episodes of Behind the Catch Fence have been thrilling to say the least. We had our first interview on the podcast with legendary sportscaster, Alan Bestwick. His experience of covering motorsports over the years was highlighted throughout that entire interview. Then in episode 16, I had the honor and absolute privilege of interviewing none other than Mario Andretti, one of the greatest drivers in all of motorsports history. Andretti's pristine knowledge and countless experiences were an absolute treat to talk about on the podcast. This week, we have the driver of the number 29 Genesis Honda for Andretti Autosport, the mayor of Hinchtown, none other than James Hinchcliffe. He is on the show today, folks. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this absolutely amazing, this phenomenal, and fun interview with none other than the mayor of Hinchtown, James Hinchcliffe. james how are you
1: i'm well how are you doing
0: i'm good man i like the background like the the uh, office he got going
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah of course man appreciate it gotta have uh gotta have a festive background right
0: oh definitely but uh well first off how are you doing and uh, what have you been up to with uh, quarantine lately
1: oh man well i mean until saturday you know it was all it was all sim racing and trying to stay on top of that world Um, not to say that it stopped I mean the IndyCar thing stopped but there's a bunch of other leagues that I foolishly agreed to join that I'm still you know spending uh, a little bit too much time on but uh, that's sort of been that that and walking the dogs has pretty much been our life for the last little while.
0: (laughs) And how how much time have you been uh, spending with Lucy and Weller just trying to keep them entertained since you guys are kind of basically inside now?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say uh, a a large majority of our day is, is, you know, concentrated on feeding them, blocking them, playing with them, entertaining them. But, you know, it's mutually beneficial, right? It gives us something to worry about and something to focus on as well. So I think everybody kind of won in that sense.
0: Oh, definitely. How would you describe their two personalities?
1: Of, Of Lucy and Weller? Yeah. Oh, man. Well, I mean, you know, Weller's only about eight months old, so he's still the puppy. He's kind of young and and dumb and and just wants to play all the time, full of energy. And and Lucy's a bit of a bit of a crotchety old girl, but she's uh, she's she's super bright. She's an incredibly smart dog. And she's kind of trying to teach him, you know, the the, the rules of the house, which is, you know, it's Lucy's house. And that's the only rule that really matters.
0: I'm sure she probably tries to run everything around there.
1: She does, she does, but he does have a little bit of a weight advantage on her, so he's, she's got to be a little, she's got to pick her paddles.
0: Oh, definitely. <laughs> now, just starting off, throughout all the times you've been interviewed throughout your career, what's a question you're surprised you haven't been asked before?
1: Oh, man. I'm not sure if there is one at this point. Uh, you know, we're uh, we're pretty open books, you know, in, the, in this line of work, but, um, oh, man, what's one... Uh... You know, I I would have said, I would have said, describe your dog's two personalities until about two minutes ago. So you you may have actually, uh, you may have actually done it right there.
0: Oh, boom. I already answered a question for you. (laughs) (laughs) I know last week uh, when I interviewed Mario Andretti, he had said what time you woke up in the morning. So what time did you wake up this morning?
1: (laughs) That's a great call. Uh, This morning. uh, Oh, so our TV, we've got this weird thing with our TV in the living room that it's done it about. I don't know, four or five times now, it just turned itself on randomly. Wow. And so I don't know if there's maybe one of our neighbors, like through the back window, like the angles work that they, when they turn on there, t- I don't know. But at 630 this morning, the TV just randomly turned itself on. So I was pretty much up after that.
0: Oh man, it's not ideal. <laughs>
1: not ideal. Suboptimal.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, where did the mayor of town, uh originate from?
1: That started uh, back in 2006, and you know it was a time sort of pre-social media, but you know the internet's booming, and websites for drivers was kind of the thing you had to have. And uh, I was I was working with a with a group that you know was helping me out with kind of the off track side of of the sport. And you know they said we got to make a website. I said cool. So we looked at a bunch of different websites to get ideas because you know we were all very new to this. And uh, we looked at all drivers from IndyCar and NASCAR and Formula One or whatever. And we came to two conclusions: it is one they were all very similar, and two they all sucked. So we decided to do something a little bit different and you know, we brainstormed over a case of uh Miller Light, I believe it was, and came up with this idea of, you know, this fictional internet town that I would be the self proclaimed mayor of. And, you know, I'm not gonna lie, it wasn't uh it wasn't super intuitive at first and it didn't really catch on at first, but eventually it did, and then all of a sudden, you know, before I knew it I was being introduced as the mayor of Hinchtown more than I was James Hinchcliffe. So I guess it stuck.
0: Yeah, it's really took off since then. <laughs> But uh, you know, looking back on the beginning of your uh, IndyCar career, what do you feel was the biggest challenge that you had to overcome, just from a driving standpoint?
1: From a driving standpoint, you know, I think when you come up through the junior categories, you know, you're only racing for 40, 45 minutes. There's no pit stops. There's not a lot of strategy in terms of tire saving or fuel management or or anything like that. And so, you know, physically from a driving standpoint, it was getting used to the length of the races and really the complexity of the races, uh, you know, knowing when to be pushing flat out, knowing when it's time to, to wheel it back a little bit. I mean, I remember I <laughs> i didn't get a ton of testing before my first IndyCar race. And so my very first time ever trying to fuel save was in warm-up before the race of my first race. So, you know, I had about 10 minutes of warm-up practice. Or sort of fuel practice um, before I ever uh, ever tried it in, in an event itself. So that those are probably the big challenges from from just the you know physically driving perspective.
0: And this also with that, uh, you know, how daunting was it to go into Indianapolis as a rookie, and uh, what type of challenges did you face during that whole month of May?
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's it was interesting, you know, looking back on it in a lot of ways because. Indy does get built up so much because it is so big, you know, and, and I think in my rookie year, I came in very prepared. I, you know, my team did an incredible job at at getting me ready for what I was going to experience. But at the same time, there seems to be. Just, just so much more. I mean, maybe, maybe pr- I wasn't going to say pressure, but maybe, maybe it is pressure just because it's Indianapolis. And you know, I mean, hitting the wall at Indy is just as bad for the race car as hitting the wall at Milwaukee. But they don't freak you out like they do, you know, at Indy when you go to Milwaukee. So you kind of get in your own head a little bit. And I think it's important for uh, for rookies when they go to the speedway to try to treat it as any other track. You know, tr- try to approach it as any other race weekend. Uh, 'Cause it's very easy to not do that and get kind of roped into uh, you know, some of the some of the, the folklore and, and and all the, the pageantry surrounding it and, and build up expectations in a way like I remember so I crashed in my first race uh, at Indy and I remember the feeling was just awful. I mean it sucks to go out of any race, but for some reason that one it was the first time in my career I was ever like physically looking at the steering wheel for the reset button. You know, I was just like, no, no, that can't happen here. That's not what's supposed to happen here. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that was that was kind of one of the big the big challenges showing up there for the first time.
0: I'm sure that was a bit too, uh, a little bit kind of daunting, especially just walking in, especially uh, when they're you know, doing driver intros and just all the the mass of people. What kind of stood out to you just with the crowds and just how much different it was from just like a typical you know race, like a, let's say you know Road America or something like that
1: yeah, you know what's so funny is you spend you know all all week. it's not month anymore, but all of practice week, which is still you know six hours a day for six or seven days, whatever it is. And you you pound around the track and uh, everything's pretty similar. On Fast Friday, there's a few more people qualifying days a little bit different. But man, race day, it it physically looks so different visually. Everything that you, you are used to going around that track is changed and and it's not that necessarily your your references have changed because you're looking at things that won't have been affected by a crowd but the background to everything that you've seen is just different and it's so much brighter and more vibrant and there's color and there's movement and there's life where before it's just great grandstands and concrete buildings you know so that's one of the craziest things to uh to get used to because those first couple laps it just it feels like you're at a different racetrack almost
0: and, uh, you know, were there any individuals that influenced you in a big way just throughout your career so far, not only as just a driver, but as just a, a person as well?
1: For sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously my kind of racing hero growing up was Greg Moore and, uh, and he had a lot of influence over me as, as a kid. And, and, you know, I've carried, I hope a lot of that with me into my professional career. You know, certainly my dad was a huge inspiration to me and, and motivator and, uh, and mentor in a lot of ways. So you know, I I owe him everything really, um, and you know there were certain drivers coming up that were that were kind of went above and beyond to help you out. And, and for particular, you know, Dario Franchitti was actually a, a really big supporter of mine and 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 a mentor uh, to me through Indy Lights and my transition to IndyCar. So there's. And then there's, there's team managers that I've worked with, engineers. I mean, Craig Hampson, who was my first IndyCar engineer, is, is still a very good friend of mine today, and, and uh, I still use lessons that he taught me every time I get in a race car. So, you know, there have been a handful of people, for sure, that have, that have been, uh, you know, they, they stand out a little bit in that sense.
0: And uh, what was it about uh, Greg Moore that just stuck out to you as you were, you know, growing up, and then just, like, what kind of, what did you kind of, what drew you to him the most?
1: Well, I mean, you know, the, the Canadian connection is the obvious sort of first point, right? And uh, and Greg got into IndyCar the same year that I started racing go-kart. So, you know, my I'd always been a fan of IndyCar racing, and I'd, you know, I'd gone to a bunch of uh, Indies in Toronto and and uh, and followed the sport religiously. But, you know, when you're also doing it now, it's that little bit cooler, you know, and you feel like you're a little more connected to it. And so I had been a big Jacques Villeneuve fan and followed his IndyCar career. So when he left and Greg kind of took over that player's car – Um, Another Canadian guy in the car I was already cheering for. So it was was a pretty natural thing to start. And then just the more I watched him race, you know, the more he impressed me with not only what he did behind the wheel, but really who he was outside of the car. You know, you you get certainly even more so back then, so little time to learn who these drivers really are as people. You know, you get the interview here or there. But every time I saw Greg on camera or read an interview, I was always just I don't know. I was just really impressed. He just seemed like a very genuine guy. He seemed like a guy that was appreciative of the situation he was in, the opportunities he'd been given, uh, just loved life, you know. And I remember as a kid thinking to myself, man, if I was ever in that position, I would want to be just like Craig Moore. And so, you know, that's something that I, I take with me. And, you know, I try to embody that as much as I can.
0: And uh, looking back at that uh, 2015 accident, you know, nearly took your life. What, how did that shape you into the person that you are today?
1: You know, that's, it's funny because a a lot of people ask if that, uh, if that changed you as a driver, you know, going through something like that. And then the short answer is no, we're too stupid to change even with something like that. Um, But yeah, as a person, it changed me in a big way because I, I'd always, because of Greg probably, and because of my parents and whatever, but I, I'd always tried to be very appreciative of, of the situation I was in. I know that I'm so, so lucky to get to do what I do and to have ever gotten. To, to do it you know even one time, never mind, 10 years later, you know. Um, very, very fortunate. I, I never take that for granted and all the rest of it. but there are there were in hindsight a lot of things in just sort of daily life that I took for granted. you know it was very easy to appreciate the really extraordinary things that happened to somebody it's a lot harder to appreciate sometimes the little things that have just always sort of been there. And when some of those are taken away from you temporarily, it, it really does open your eyes. And so, you know, for me, uh, appreciating little things in life uh, is definitely something that I spend more time doing, uh, not worrying about things that really aren't that important. I do a lot less of that, which is nice. Um, so it's, you know, it's there were some really, really big positives for me personally just as a human being i think that that came out of that whole experience
0: i moving ahead to one year later uh, when you won the pole for the 100th, for 100th running of the uh, indy 500 describe that pole run and just the the emotions that came just uh, especially coming back after the injury <laughs>
1: You know, we we unloaded there, and we were we were decent.
0: You know, I didn't think uh,
1: I thought we were a top ten car. I think the whole the whole team kind of had us, you know, fighting in the fast nine, which you know, which we were going to be happy with. And when we sort of switched into quali spec on Fast Friday, uh, and we went through the runs, you know, it was a bit of a different format back then. But uh, we ended up going, you know, P one on the day to set the grid uh, for the fast nine in that first round of qualifying. And we were a little bit surprised if I'm totally honest, you know, we, again, we thought we had a, a fast nine car, but, uh, but going P one on the day was a bit of a, a, bit of a shock. And what it really just did is it gave us a good pit box for the race. If you were happy about, and, uh, you know, we got to go last in the fast nine. Uh, so at least you knew what you had to be, but I think even going into qualifying on Sunday, we, we weren't sitting there being like oh this is ours to lose you know like man this is gonna be tough but we're in a we're in a good spot and you know we didn't practice that morning we wanted to just leave the car for the one run so it's really weird it's a weird day watching the rest of the field qualify and sitting around until five o'clock or whatever it is before you go out and, and you're doing your run it's the first time you're sitting in the car for the whole day. You have no idea what the track conditions are like. You have no idea what the car is going to feel like. And you just have to go flat out and hold on for the fastest laps of the month. Uh, It's a bit crazy. But, um, you know, Joseph had gone out and done, you know, an incredible lap, uh, you know, incredible qualifying run. And one of his laps was over 231, which is way faster than anything we had done. And so, you know, I came around for my first lap. And so I was like a 230.8, if I remember correctly. And I'm like, okay, so we're, you know, we're probably not in it for the, for the pole, but maybe a front row or, you know, second row, no problem. And I remember, you know, Joseph's laps, he had quite a bit of fall off. And so as I'm running around, my second lap was actually a 10th of a mile an hour quicker. I'm like, Oh, that's weird. That's okay. This is good. This is a good trend trending upwards. Yes. And it was kind of hovering right about what Joseph's average was. And so by the third lap, when I crossed over, I think at like a 230.8 again or 230.7. I'm like, I'm trying to do the math in my head. I'm like, okay, no, this is actually, this is still a thing. And uh, I crossed the line and I saw the the number and I quite literally was trying to do the math in my head. And I'm thinking to myself, man, it's close. It's way closer than I thought it was going to be. And then my radio just keyed up and all I heard was just screaming and cheering and there were no words, but you didn't need any. So you know, I, I realized that that it was it was enough, and it was it was such a cool feeling, and especially coming back after you know the year before, it was just such a such a kind of exclamation mark on everything. And you know, we had said going into the to the month of May that uh, we wanted to leave that track at the end of the month with a different story to tell, because for 12 months it'd been the same story about us, you know, about the five car and the crew and everybody was. All about Indy, all about the accident, whatever, and uh, and I really wanted to stop telling that story. I was kind of sick of that story, so we we wanted to make a new story, and we did. You know, we obviously didn't finish as high in the race as we would have liked, but we battled up front all day, led a bunch of laps, had a had a great day, really. Um, so it was it was a it was a great way to end it.
0: And it's like comparing, let's say, like a, a pole run versus just a regular lap around Indy just during the race. How does that compare and just how much more emphasis is there just just to like in turning the car in each corner is to making sure that you don't like make one little bobble? Like how does that kind of compare?
1: It's it's a lot different. It's it's so funny. I mean, you know, you go around and, and run around and race running it, you know, high, high two teens, low 220, something like that. And everything feels pretty buttoned up. And it's such a weird thing to think that at 220 miles an hour it can feel buttoned up, but that's what the car is built for. But then, kind of once you hit 220, every mile an hour after that, you really do notice a different a difference. And, and by the time you get to 230, it's crazy because to get there, you have to strip away every ounce of downforce that you're willing to strip away. The car is now barely holding on to the racetrack, and. You are balancing the, the tire wear. You're balancing wind direction. Every little thing now has an effect on the car. You know, in race trim, like I said, it's buttoned up. It can take a lot. In qualifying trim, it cannot. And so you are so hyper-focused on every turning point, every input that you're, that you're putting into the car with your hands. You've got to be so precise, so gentle. And then, you, you know, that we talk about staying ahead of the car. Right? That's a big challenge in any qualifying is over four laps, the tires will will wear, things will change, the balance will change. And staying on, on top of it, staying in front of it, you don't want to react to it. You want to almost predict what it's going to do so you don't lose time at one end of the track, make an adjustment so it's better for the next end of the track. You want to make sure you don't lose that time in the first place. So, you know, you're doing four laps. You're by yourself. You don't have to lift off the throttle, hopefully, and and it's still like some of the most mentally taxing driving you're ever going to do because you are trying to manage so much and adjust on the fly and predict what's coming. You're looking at the wind socks. You're trying to figure out what that's going to do to the car as you're coming through one or you're coming through three. So it, it really is a unique experience, and I think everybody that does it, you just go out there and you hold your breath for 10 miles and hope you come out the other side.
0: Man, that's gotta be that's gotta be taxing just on you, especially the crew as well, just trying to go through that and then especially if like something doesn't go right, you know, for instance two thousand eighteen with the five hundred qualifying, just, I'm sure that has to be a lot to just a lot of pressure just on the entire team.
1: No, for sure. You know, and, and the Indy Indy is obviously so unique in, in qualifying, you know, everywhere else you say qualifying doesn't pay the points and it doesn't pay the money indy there are actually some points and there is a little bit of money but it's not the point you know it's the qualifying on pole at indy is is such a badge of honor for a team and and for that driver just to know that of of everybody that's put in the number of hours if you collectively look at the number of hours spent on those 33 race cars to get them to that point it's an incredible amount of manpower. It's an incredible amount of brain power of, of blood, sweat and tears that goes into each and every one of those entries. And to know at the end of the day that your group did it better is, is such a badge of honor. It really, really is.
0: How do you stay, uh, just upbeat, motivated and confident just during times when they get tough throughout the course of the season?
1: It's tough. There's no doubt about it. You know, I think, uh, I think this is it's such a hyper competitive sport, and, and every athlete in it, and in and the engineers, and the crews, like we're all we're all from the same cloth in that sense. And I think we just we always want to be performing at our best, and so when something happens that that prevents that from happening, whether it's self inflicted or something you know external, uh, it is very easy to fall into you know a bit of a, a bit of a downward spiral and. Um, and, it's, and it can be very challenging to kind of keep your motivation up. But I think at the end of the day, you need to remember, you know, what we're doing and why we started doing it in the first place. Uh, driving indie cars is fun. Competing is fun. At the end of the day, it's supposed to be fun. But winning is fun. So when you don't <laughs> – so it's this weird sort of, you know, thing you got to balance. Um, but I, I think it's surrounding yourself – with the right people you know i think if you're in the right environment and you've got the right people around you uh you all support each other you know because it's not just the driver that feels disappointment when a when a result is bad it is the whole crew and uh if we can all be there for each other i think uh i think that's the the big key
0: i hear a lot of you know a lot of times i hear indycar drivers they say they're you know you hear they're wired differently Uh, from your perspective what does that term wired differently mean to you
1: so I, I think what it means in a lot of ways is you know we lack the self-preservation gene that I think a lot of human beings are born with uh, We're just willing to put ourselves in positions that are a little more precarious than I think the average person um, and you know your your competitiveness is is it, it, it's a combination of two things that make you know drivers unique as people and one it's your competitiveness but that comes from every athlete right i mean any professional athlete has that uh and then it's our obviously our love of balancing a race car on the absolute edge uh and that combination of of those two things is is hard hard to find because one of them is kind of crazy uh and but when you when you put them together you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a recipe for a, you know, for a very successful racing driver. And it's just, um, it's not something I think that you find in a lot of people, both of those traits, you know, and then of course, you have to actually have the ability to do it. I mean, I guess it's not, it's not just being competitive and wanting to do it. You also have to kind of be okay at it. So there's uh yeah, there's, there's a lot that goes into making uh, making us what we are.
0: Now you've driven on various tracks throughout your career. Uh, what do you feel has been the most challenging track to figure out throughout the course of a weekend?
1: Oh, man. Easy. Uh, That would have been a hard question until about, what is it, eight months ago? Uh, um, The Bathurst track, Mount Panorama, uh, unbelievably challenging track, incredible track. And I can't wait to get the invitation to go back. But, you know, Alexander Rossi and I went there. um, I I don't want to say we went there like brimming with confidence. We knew it was going to be a huge challenge, but even going into it, with that mindset, which in and of itself is very hard for a driver. You know, you don't like going into situations. You don't think you can be ultra successful in, um, but at the same time we love a challenge and this was probably the most challenging thing that we've put ourselves into. If you look at what we had to do, how much time we had to do it and who we were doing it against, uh, it was definitely stacked against us, but no, that, that track is uh, very unique, very challenging. And especially when trying to learn it in a car that you're learning for the first time as well. That was, that was a big one.
0: What was like the difference just the main difference between like those V8 supercars and then just an indie car. I'm, I'm sure it's the weight differential definitely played a part in that.
1: The weight is a huge part of it for sure. Um, you know, it's got a roof, you're not sitting in the middle. Uh, it's got pretty narrow tires, not a lot of downforce, uh, tons of power, which, which is awesome. <laughs> um, but yeah, the the vehicle dynamics of it were definitely a lot um, a lot different than an indie car. Just in how it moves and and how you had to put inputs into the car to get the lap time out of it. Uh, learning how to do that with the car, learning how the tires behave all while learning one of the most typical tracks in the world. You know, it was a lot. It was a lot of information <laughs> coming in all at once. Um, but, no, it's, 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 it is very different uh, for sure. But, uh, you know, you get in, and at the end of the day, it's still a race car. It's still got four wheels and an engine. You just got to figure out how to, how to make it go fast.
0: Looking back just on your career so far, what race do you feel has just been the most memorable to you?
1: Uh, for me, it's still my first win. Honestly, you know um, that that race in St. Pete meant so so much to me, and the emotion around that day was crazy. You know, my my parents were there, and for us, in a lot of ways, it was sort of validation of the you know two decades of hard work and sacrifice and everything that we'd given up to to pursue this career. And you know, be, being able to have them there to share that meant an awful lot to me. And uh, you know, it was, it was in St. Pete. Uh, and you know, I, when I drove for Andretti and and I drove the number 27, I always sort of looked at that as Dan's car, you know, and, uh, to be in his hometown with his family there as well. That was another thing that made it very special. And it's just, uh, uh, yeah, it's just proving, proving yourself that you you could do it. You know, you could get pitted against the best in the world and come out on top. It's, It's just no feeling like it. And, uh, yeah, we've, we've won races since then, but that one's always going to be, I think until we went either Indy or Toronto, that one's going to be, you know, top of the, top of the charts.
0: And speaking of Toronto, oh how, how, like, what's the difference between just, you know, going to any other racetrack and then when you go back home and just what's the, this, like the vibe around Toronto, like when you go back there.
1: It's crazy, man. I love going back to Toronto to race, you know, that's, that's the race that I went to as a kid that made me fall in love with, with racing with IndyCar specifically. And I, uh, I, I've got so many memories of going there as a kid, and you know it's what's so cool about getting to go back there is I really am so so lucky. A lot of the drivers in this series don't even have a race in their home country, never mind their hometown, and and so that's something I, you know to get to experience that is is something that I'm incredibly lucky. Uh, I had the opportunity to do, and the uh, for a, for a large part of my career I was the only Canadian in the field, and so I was the hometown, I was the default hometown favorite, you know? Um, and, and we only have the one race and we only had the one driver. So the whole country really got behind you and and you felt that. And it was, it was an unbelievable amount of support. Uh, definitely the busiest week of my year, (laughs) but, uh, but it was worth it, you know, to to get the opportunity, like I said, uh, to be in front of friends, family and and running around the, you know, the very streets that, that I fell in love with, with racing uh, as a kid. So it's, it's a, it's a great experience
0: you competed in a uh, season 23 dancing with the stars um, what was that experience like and just what were some of the challenges that came with that
1: I mean some of the challenges were everything um <laughs> I you know I, I joke but, but it's really not a joke that my dancing experience before the show was this you know maybe yeah. maybe the macarena on a good day um the the experience was incredible honestly i I wasn't ens- I wasn't entirely sure what to expect going into it, even though I you know I picked Elio's brain as much as I could beforehand. Uh, it still doesn't totally prepare you until you're really immersed in it, and it was way more work than I thought it was going to be. Uh, so it was it was very very challenging in that sense. But you know I think that's why athletes do well on that show is we're used to pushing ourselves, we're used to long hours of practice, of repetition, of being coached and. And trying to improve on something—it's that's how we're wired. Um, it was terrifying, you know, doing something that was so foreign in front of not just even like it was hard enough with the live audience. There's, I think, seven hundred people or something in the building, but then you remember every once in a while that those cameras are broadcasting to like twelve million homes, you know, that are tuning in every Monday. So it was, uh, yeah, man. It was it was a crazy experience. It was uh, it was a ton of fun. It was a lot of work. It was a ton of fun. I'm very glad that I, I convinced myself to do it. Um, but yeah, it was uh, everything about it was hard. <laughs> and
0: just how did that even uh, come up? Did did somebody come up to you about it, or how did that happen?
1: So earlier in the year. Um, IndyCar had uh, – we had a team of guys go out to play on Celebrity Family Feud. And so uh, – no, it was it was Elio, TK, Will, Connor, and myself got to go play Family Feud, which was like a dream come true. Like TK and I were the only two that actually watched the show on that. The rest of them had no idea, but I loved the show and I, I always wanted to do it. So we, we went and got to play – and, uh, it's on the same network. And, and one of the producers from dancing with the stars had, uh, had been in the audience and I guess any car had been talking to them, you know, been 10 years since Elio had done it. And they were talking about maybe, you know, doing, uh, doing another driver. And so they, they came out to the taping and they're like, well, who's this guy? He looks like he, he could fit the bill. So they, they asked me if I'd be interested. I said, I don't know, maybe. And this was in February. So they said, well, after the long beach race in, in April, come to a, come to a show, come to a taping and check it out. So I went and I checked it out and it was all very overwhelming and I couldn't quite believe what I was seeing. And, uh, and that was sort of it. I didn't hear anything or say anything. It just sort of never came up again, uh, until kind of mid August. And we were sitting, I was sitting in my bus at at Pocono. It was Friday of Pocono weekend and my phone rings and it's one of the producers and she says, Hey, um, are you still interested in doing dancing with the stars? And I said, I, don't know if I ever said I was entirely interested in doing dancing with the stars. And she goes, well, we'd love you to be on the show. Um, you would have to, uh, move to LA, uh, for three months. Uh, you have to do everything we tell you to do. And you've got 40 hours to decide. I was like, Oh, cool. On a race weekend, no less. So luckily actually it was a race weekend. So I just, I just hunted, I just went and knocked on Elio's glass and said, dude, all right, tell me everything. What, what should I do? And he, he really is one of the ones that convinced me to do it. He said, you absolutely have to do it. You're going to love it. He said, it's a ton of work. He undersold that part of it. I'm still, still mad at him about that. Uh, but uh, but that's, that's kind of how it came about. And it was very last – it was like in, in two weeks, you're moving to L.A. for three months. Can you do this? And we still had a couple – we still had one race. By the time I moved out there, we still had one race. So we had the race in Sonoma. So that week I did almost no practice. I don't know how I didn't go home on week two, but, uh, but yeah, that's, it's, it's, uh, it's a crazy, crazy story. How it all came together. It's
0: something you can look back on for years to come now. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, With Roger Penske, uh, Owen the Brickyard and the IndyCar series now, how big of an influence do you see him having just on the trajectory of the sport as a whole?
1: Well, I mean, I think you look at, uh, at at Roger's track record, just you know, as a businessman and, and within the sport. So you look at those two things independently, uh, and they're both impressive resumes. You combine them, and you got to think there aren't many people that would have a great argument for being better in charge than than him. It's it's going to be very interesting to see how the direction changes uh how soon we start seeing the the effects of that or the results of of that Uh, i don't i don't have a ton of information on that I, i wish i had a bit more than i did but i'm sure they're still figuring things out obviously i think he owned it for all of six weeks before you know the world fell apart here so he's uh he's still i imagine trying to figure out how do we get back to where we were and then how we then grow from there. But I think everybody's got a ton of confidence that the, the, that Roger and the group around him know what they're doing. They know how to run successful businesses. He knows about the sport intimately and, you know, heading into this sort of new, new generation of IndyCar car racing. This is uh, this is as good a, a steward as we could have.
0: Recently, IRA seems to become just the go-to for race fans. uh <laughs> you know just for entertainment with the pandemic uh what are your thoughts on i racing and just how do you see a change in the landscape obviously you know of motorsports i mean i know last week was not ideal by any stretch but <laughs> yeah
1: i think uh i think it's great that this whole situation has has brought a lot of attention to sim racing and and you know i Racing in particular it's it really is an incredible platform and i knew about it and i played it but i hadn't played it enough just to really appreciate how much time and energy and effort and money and everything has gone into the details of that game it really is an impressive impressive uh, bit of software and it's so it's it's cool that but it's gotten, I think a little bit more of the, the attention that it really deserves and uh, and the accolades that it deserves. And I think honestly, you know, it's a, it's a super unique situation. No other sport can really do what we did. Um, You can't have a bunch of guys playing NFL 2019 and put it on TV and have it be entertaining in the slightest. I don't think, I think the NBA tried it. And I I saw it once. So it obviously wasn't a, yeah, it wasn't a very good experiment. Um, But I think what we've done is we've kind of, we've, we've unlocked one of the great mysteries of our sport, you know, in IndyCar specifically, our season is shorter than F1 it's shorter than NASCAR. And one of the big issues is that we're off air for six months. We're non-existent to the people. We're not generating the kind of content that they want. We're not putting on shows. And so now what I think we've, done is answered how to how to do that you know and and in my opinion and no one's no one's asked me for it (laughs) but uh I think an off-season e-championship or i-championship is a no-brainer you know it uh I think we learned a lot of lessons in our sort of IndyCar challenge uh experiment and I think we can format it in a different way that would make it more of the, the product that I think we want it to be. But ultimately, it gives drivers something to kind of keep their competitive juices flowing. And it's great mental training for us anyway. It gives sponsors a little extra exposure over the six months that we're not you know, in the real cars. And it gives fans something extra to watch as well. So it's, for me, it's a, it really is a no-brainer. And, and I hope that we embrace that and, and really kind of take that positive out of this whole thing.
0: And one last question. Uh, as we near closer to the beginning of the season, hopefully, uh, what are your goals for 2020 just with running a limited schedule with Andretti Autosport?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously for us it's uh, it's a bit of a different deal. And uh, we've got three races with, with Genesis uh, on board with Andretti. And um, you know, it's funny, the first one is, is one of our races. Texas is one of the races we had planned. So I, I, haven't, I haven't missed a race yet, which is kind of neat. Uh, in the 2020 season, I've done as much as everyone else. Um, but no, it's, um, I I think for me, the, the goals are, are really simple. You know, it's, it's integrate yourself into the team as best as possible. It is, um, support the team as best as possible and sort of get myself up to speed in a way that positions me nicely for 2021. Um, I obviously want to be back full time on the grid next year. Uh, I think Genesis is keen to, to, to be involved and, and to try to grow the program. And, you know, there's, there's no better place to do it than address the autosport. So for me, the goals, rather than looking at specifically, I want to finish at least in position X, it's I want to put myself in a position to be invaluable to this organization for 2021. And, yeah, results is going to be a part of that, but that's also going to come from other areas uh, that I'm going to have to focus on, you know, a little more than you would if you were, you know, locked down in a full time, full time position for next year. So it's it's going to be a bit of a, a different feel for sure. And you know, so it's so funny because we're going to go to Texas as the first race, and I'm going to be in it, so it won't feel any different. And then all of a sudden, Road America's going to come along, I'm going to be like, oh wait, no, this sucks. I wasn't, hey, I oh, I really like, I liked it last week. Why can't we? Oh, man. But you know, it's it's our reality. I was ready for it in St. Pete, and then it didn't happen. So, but. Uh, but yeah, those are, that's, I think the most important thing is, is really just perform, uh, in an all round way that, that positions us well for 2021.
0: Yes. And, uh, just, you know, with the other races that you, you'll, you'll you, you'll be with NBCSN, NBC, NBC, how, what kind of, how, what are kind of, what kind of attracted you with that?
1: You know, the, the broadcasting side of it has always been something that's interested me. When I was younger in the junior categories, I, I actually got the opportunity to do a little bit of kind of off-the-cuff broadcasting with uh, the international feed for the old champ car races, and it gave me a, a cool look and, and insight into into what that's like, and, and, I, and I enjoyed doing it, so it's always something that I've thought of doing sort of post-career. Now, you know, like I said, I, I still have a, a bunch of years of driving left in me, but while I sort of have my my gap year, as I'm calling it, uh, it made sense to kind of get my get my foot in the door and uh, you know get my feet wet with with the broadcasting side with NBC and they're a great partner in IndyCar and they've done a phenomenal job since they took over and uh, it's cool to get to see it from the other side now. So for me, it's great experience that uh, hopefully is, is a, a nice springboard for uh, for maybe a, a future a future gig.
0: Most definitely. Uh, I really appreciate you uh, coming on to the show, James, and I uh, wish you nothing but the best.
1: Awesome. Thanks very much, man. Appreciate it. Take care.
0: I'll see you in Texas, man.
1: <laughs> All right. We'll see you there. Bye. Bye-bye.
0: I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of behind the catch fence with special guest james hinchcliffe it was an absolute joy being able to chat with him about everything from racing his dancing with the stars experience his near fatal injury and of course his two dogs weller and lucy i'd like to thank james once again for coming on to the podcast before i go make sure to follow this podcast on twitter and instagram at behind catch yes i finally changed my instagram handle so it's not as ridiculously long Shout out to my girlfriend for nudging me enough to make the change. Anyway, thank you again for listening. I'll catch you guys later.